What's funny is, you know, I, I never said The Master was my favorite Paul Thomas Anderson film, especially seeing There Will Be Blood, you know? What is your favorite Paul Thomas Anderson Oh, no, film? it's it's The Master. No, 100%. I just, I, anyways, look. Hey, this is David, and welcome to I Finally Watched. And this is Alon, and I finally watched There Will Be Blood. So before I start talking about the movie a little bit, Alon, why don't you just go ahead and do it? And get it out of your system. I drink your milkshake. I was very worried that you weren't going to take the bait on it, but bravo. So There Will Be Blood was a movie that I really loved when I saw it. I, uh, you know, this came out in 2007. And at that time, I was trying to go see a lot of the, like, really well-reviewed Oscar potential movies. And I saw this and... No Country for Old Men around the same time. And I think those movies will probably always be linked for me just because it was, you know, the one two going for all the Oscars that year. Um, and I remember coming out of them really unhappy with No Country for Old Men, just the way the story went. And I loved There Will Be Blood. Um, and since then, I've watched No Country for Old Men again last year, and I really loved it again and realized I was kind of an idiot. And so coming into watching this again, I was wondering, you know, was I going to feel the same way um, that I think There Will Be Blood is better? And I think I do still. Um, it's like, you know, picking your favorite child. I mean, they're both like amazing movies. Um, but There Will Be Blood is is one that really sticks with you. And I think to take something such as like, you know, oil drilling and make it so tense and so, you know, invigorating, so enthralling is, is like a real testament to how great of a movie this is. So Alon, what'd you think on your first watch? Well, um, I really like this film. I mean, what's not to like, right? Because it has Daniel Day-Lewis, who's an incredible actor, it has, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson directing this and you know even the the side characters um Paul Dano who's more like the antagonist but you know he he's in there and then or he he's the antagonist and he plays a side character um and then yeah twofer and then I don't know the name of the uh actor who plays like Daniel's right hand man it's Syrian Hines I think is the best I'm gonna be able to pronounce that but yeah he's in a lot of of great stuff I mostly remember him from a movie called The Debt that had um Helen Mirren I believe Jessica Chastain might have been in that and then uh yeah that, that was a pretty good movie I mean but he's been in a ton of stuff yeah he's been in a ton of stuff and he was really good in this um you know, overall, I, I thought this movie was incredible to just the, from the acting to the storytelling to the visual aspect of this. Um, it's funny that you said that this is like, I, I guess you're coming off of the Oscars of that year and saying No Country for Old Men is almost like this movie's rival in a way, right? Oh, yeah. And they were actually filming at the very same time, very closely to each other in proximity, like their locations. Was there like bad blood between the productions or was it pretty amiable? Well, the only thing is, and uh, we'll talk about the scene a little bit more, but the, um, the big fire scene on the, on the, uh, the oil well, 
right. the smoke from that actually made it onto the set of No Country for Old Men at one point. Oh, that's funny. But yeah, I don't think, I mean, I don't think there's any bad blood between them or anything. But yeah, it's just, it's just funny how these two movies, you know, because movies can be filmed and take forever in post-production to be ready and finally released. But for these to be filmed at the exact same time, released very closely, and then come out and um, both be going for Oscars is pretty cool. And they're both kind of have this, you know, Western vibe to them. Yeah. Um that's the other thing too is that the fact that they both have this western vibe as you say about them one kind of taking place in the wild west times and then one kind of more modern but still a very cowboy-esque movie i guess you would say to describe no country for old men uh so i've seen both films now and I think for me, I like No Country for Old Men better. It, like, I think it's more superior. It's, it's a more superior film. Um, and well, Superior. Yeah, superior. Um, and it's not saying like I, I had any, you know, like real big problems with There Will Be Blood. But the story that No Country for Old Men tells versus what this story uh, says, um, I thought that there was a lot of moments and there will be blood that for me could be either organized differently or cut altogether. Like what, for example? So first of all, the time jumps in the beginning don't really bother me um where it started to kind of bother me was the last jump at the end where it's like 20 years goes by and uh just i the fact that there was a time jump you know that wasn't the problem the problem was where it was in the film and the fact that the film at times felt disjointed and and i'll definitely get into it more um, but let's start at the beginning when you first meet the main character, Daniel, played by Daniel Day-Lewis. He's like down in a mine shaft. And when I was first watching this, I was so surprised when he emerged from the mine shaft that it was like broad daylight. Because of how dark it was down there? Because of how dark it was, yeah. I think what, what stuck with me about the beginning of this movie is there's no dialogue for nearly the first five minutes of it. And the only thing he says is no after he falls down the, sh the shaft. And then he, what I think that that opening is supposed to do besides just be like so well done and with not having any dialogue and just showing Daniel in solitude is one, how comfortable he is in that, but two, showing like who he is and what he's all about. Like he's a very determined man. He's a very methodical man he has his eye on, on the goal. And so even after he like almost dies falling down the shaft and busts his leg, which is going to be something I'll have to live with. He's like, let me check to see what, you know, what this explosion brought me and let, let me grab this silver. And then he gets out of the, of the, the well. It's not really a well though. It's more of like a mine. Uh, he gets out of the mine and you see like he's out in the middle of nowhere 
and then the next scene he's like at the place where he sells his silver to get paid and he's like laying on the ground like the implication almost that he like crawled there which is probably not what happened but just like that whole the whole point of that is just to lay out like how determined this guy is and i think it's a very interesting juxtaposition to your favorite paul thomas anderson movie the master where the first five or so minutes is sort of explaining joaquin phoenix's character who is not methodical not determined he's just like this big fuck up who's also probably a little bit insane what's funny is you know i i never said the master was my favorite paul thomas anderson film especially seeing there will be blood you know what is your favorite Paul Thomas Anderson? Oh no, it's it's the master. No, a hundred percent. I just I anyways, look, I, I think another thing that the the opening scene is very telling, you you use the word determined, but you know, as we watch the film, you kind of see that the determination becomes more of an obsession with Daniel's character. And I think I read somewhere a while ago, like a list of like the 10 most obsessed oriented uh, main characters in film. And Daniel was definitely like top three, top five. And, to, and we'll get to like more um, really awesome scenes where you see that in like its full glory. But another thing that that opening scene does for me is it really shows you how chaotic and dangerous mining is. And I think the fact that you learn that how the audience learns how dangerous it is, is a reoccurring factor throughout the entire movie. Well, mining and then, and then oil, like the, is the kind of, you know, the silver mining is just the very first beginning. And then he kind of gets into doing the, uh, the oil rig. I, I actually, I kind of disagree with you a little bit too on the timeline stuff. I, I think it's it's done really well where it's just kind of a very simplistic like here's the year boom that now we've we've jumped ahead and I kind of like that he doesn't feel the need to do this big to do about oh we you know we've moved on it's just like all right I'm done showing you what you need to get the story and so now we're going to move on to where I want the story to go from now on and I especially actually like the last cut cuz I like how he's sh- we can get to it later but i like how he's showing mary following hw around in the next scene you see them getting married like you see a close-up of her face and a close-up of his face i think that's very well done um the the problem that i had with the timing of the last time jump is you're right you know it's a lot of focus on the kids mary sunday and hw Plainview. the the reason it struck me as an odd placement for the cut is because the whole movie is focused on Daniel and his character. And for the cut to kind of be oriented around his son was just kind of weird to me. And that that's really the only problem I had with it. Yeah. But I think it also is kind of, you know, there's two things in Daniel's life. There's his obsession with oil and what oil can get him money but not even necessarily the money. And then there's, you know, him as a family man. I think that the start of that is really, it's interesting. It's also very sad. There's like a baby on an oil rig. You know, they don't know that they call them rigs when they're on land, but just 
<laughs> like just sitting there, the, the father of this baby is actually dumping oil with a bucket as he's holding the baby in the other hand. It just that scene, I was just like, man, life was so much tougher back then. Like yeah. I, I don't think I would have survived as a baby if I was like being, you know, growing up on an oil rig. Were you a a soft baby, David? I think we're all soft babies now, Alan. Oh, even okay. as even as adults. Um, but then the scene where after the, the father dies and uh, Daniel Day-Lewis is just covered in oil with the hat, staring at the baby, just like, what do I do with this? Um, it's pretty interesting, but I do think throughout the movie, that kind of juxtaposition of the way he treats H.W., versus the way he treats everything else in his life is interesting because I think you could paint him as either, you know, a completely like evil kind of bad character. But I do think that the HW character kind of grounds Daniel and also gives him this complexity that you may not have had if you didn't have that character. Well, what's so interesting about you saying like you can paint him as this like evil guy he's kind of like our anti-hero of the film you know we see most of everything from his perspective and you know he's undoubtedly the main character of the movie but he has all these flaws and he has all these problems with him that you know you you don't really want to root for him um and then uh, Paul Dano in the form of Eli shows up and I think what they did with that character and the conflict that they uh, made between these two characters is so interesting and obviously that's like the main bulk of the film. Yeah it's it's pretty interesting if you take just on paper you have this Christian preacher character who's the son of a farmer, a goat farmer, and you have a oil man who's coming in to try and take the oil out of their land as cheaply as possible, you're going to say, oh, well, I'm going to be rooting for the preacher's son. And this movie is very easily able to, I was rooting for Daniel, not root, you know, I mean, I didn't have a, a flag pendant or something in a jersey, but I just mean, I was more in line with I think for most of the movie, Daniel Plainview is actually shown as a pretty decent fellow considering the line of work he's in. And we can get into that as we go along, but he, you know, he lies to people, but he's also like, he adopted this kid off his oil rig that he didn't need to. And he has no business raising. Like he has no, there's nothing about him that would let you to believe he has the skills to do that. And then he does sort of go into these towns and maybe he doesn't give people the deal that they deserve, but he does better their lives. He brings in schools, he brings in, he, he enriches these places. And so there, there's up until a certain point that I think he's actually not a terrible person. And then you just kind of realize that no, actually he is as well. No, I, I agree with you. I think there are some qualities that redeem him at times and then like you said he does these things that are unredeemable and it it's it sets back your view on on him um one of the things that he does quite early on is he shows his his greed 
you know, he's very greedy, uh, especially when it comes to negotiating land and buying out the land. Um, and it's almost this kind of like trickery he does with, you know, getting the information he did from, from Paul, the brother of Eli, also played by Paul Dano. And then, you know, faking that he's like this quail hunter with his son, all the while prospecting the land, basically. Um, and the power struggle that happens between Eli, uh, the character of Eli, and him is like one of the best. Uh, I don't know. I don't even know how to say it. Like one of the best face-offs I've seen in a film. Since face-off. Since face-off. I think you get to see a little bit more of Daniel's character right before he runs into Eli. And then right before he talks to Paul, Paul Dano. Which I can explain why that happened. But um, when it cuts to him speaking to that crowd gathered as they're all murmuring and yelling, and H.W. is now a 10 to 11-year-old boy standing next to him, 9 to 11. And he's explaining, you know, giving this great speech. Like, he's a great orator. Like, the, you know, I'm an oil man, but I'm also a family man. And I promise you, no one can, can deliver the way I can. I have my own tools. I have my own men. Like, that scene is so great. A any scene where Daniel Day-Lewis just gets the monologue is amazing. But I love the voice that he has for this one. Um... And I love that scene, too, because everyone starts arguing and bickering. People are yelling. One dude's telling the woman to sit down. She has no place being in here. And then he's just like, fuck it. I don't, I don't need this. And the guy, he walks out, and the guy's like, what do you do? We need you. And he's like, I wouldn't take this as a gift. And then he goes north up the hill and goes to one guy, offers him a subpar deal because, hey, you're not where all the action is down there. But up there, he can just get all of it anyway. Right. He can get as much as he wants. And so just like, this is going to sound like a purposeful pun, but he's so crude with his business endeavors, like the way he, he thinks. And I think, it, but the way he goes about it is his dishonesty is so kind of apparent to us as the audience that it comes off to us as honest because we're able to see the, the machinations in his head. Well, another thing is, is that it, what Paul Thomas Anderson did with this character, first of all, naming him Daniel Plainview is like, okay, you know, he's very like off the cuff, very tell it how it is, but he also deals with oil. The way he deals with oil, and pun intended, but I think it is kind of meant to be this way, is he is very slick in his business arrangements. And the, just from like the way he dresses and then what he he's wearing when he's like, you know, proper business attire and then how that changes throughout the film. And you see him at one point when, you know, one of the oil uh, rigs, land rigs explode and he's drenched in oil and he like loves it. Like that's his you know, it's almost like that's how he came out of the womb, right? That's how he's supposed to be. And 
everything about his character falls directly on that track. Right. And so then next you have him, he meets with Paul, uh, Paul Dano, the Paul character. And so the reason that they are played by the same, both played by Paul Dano is there was actually a different actor who was cast as Eli Sunday. And they filmed a few scenes and similar to like Back to the Future and other movies like this, it just wasn't working out. And they had to get rid of the guy who was playing it. I don't remember who he was. I've seen him in some stuff. I think he's mostly a writer now. Um, and they had to recast it. And Paul Dano had originally gone out for that part as well. And so they're just like, all right, we'll just have you do both. And we'll kind of change it up a little bit to where now obviously you're twins. Um, and then you have the whole scene where Daniel Day-Lewis and H.W. first meet Eli Sunday. And they kind of give each other this look. That was so confusing when I saw this in theaters. I was like, wait, what is going on here? Is this a trick? What is, what is Paul Thomas Anderson trying to convey here by showing the Paul character show up and the Eli character? Nothing. It wasn't, it was just a casting like practicality. Um, but I do think the way he plays with it after the fact is, is interesting. Um, and how kind of, especially to get a little bit into the ending, how when Daniel Day-Lewis is telling Eli off at the very end of the movie, he's like, no, Paul already beat you to it. He's the strong one. You're the afterbirth. He's the one who got all of his money um, and you get nothing. Right. But have, having those two characters it completely confused me, but I think it, it, you know, they made it work. And obviously Paul Dano, he can, he can play both of those parts. Yeah. And you, you're right with that ending line, which I guess you could almost call a throwaway line. If you pay close attention, that line has a lot of backing to it. Um, another thing is, is that they had the same haircut, both of Paul Dano's characters. So that, that I had a twin theory going on, but then I also had like, oh, he moves really fast. Like, oh, you know, he's Paul there, but he wants to, he doesn't want to give up his real name because he's, he's also being so secretive about where the land is. And I was like, oh, maybe if he gives up his real name and his surname that could also give away where he's from. And so when you see Eli there at the farm, uh, my first thought was, oh, it, he gave a fake name and that's still the same character. I, I love the scene with the Paul Sunday character too, because, you know, Daniel is used to in these cat, cat and mouse games being the cat, but Paul is just as ready with, you know, you keep asking me these questions. Do not think I'm stupid. I'm not giving you anything until I get what I want. And it's also interesting too. There's kind of this like subtext of maybe life at the Sunday household isn't all that it seems to be. Um, you have Mary kind of telling HW that she gets beat and Paul could stay with the family and maybe get more of this oil money if he's able to work a, a good deal with Daniel coming in. But instead he just wants $500 presumably so he can escape this life and like never have to go back. And we do never see him again. Well, it almost makes you think, well, we do, but it almost makes you think that Jeez. Um, he, he's almost damning his family by telling Daniel about the oil. Um, because you're right, he, he just wants $500 that, 
then he'll give the information about where the oil is and, and he'll you know move on. You do find out later, and I don't know if this is actually true, but Daniel says that Paul ended up uh, opening a few rigs of his own. Yeah, when he said that, I was like, that's kind of, we could take that as true, or we could take that as this entire movie, there's been this struggle between Daniel and Eli, and right before he beats him to death, he's just going to turn the screw a little bit more, because he's already... I don't want to get into the ending now, but he's already kind of really given it to him in that scene. Um, so that might just be, uh, that's like the twist of the knife at the end, like to really make it hurt about how poorly things have turned out for Eli. The, the negotiation tactic, and I think we can almost talk about a majority of this movie this way. Um, so I'll, I'll start by saying when Daniel sits down uh, in front of, Eli and his father. And Abel Sunday. Abel Sunday. The fact that they're all church folk and their last name is Sunday also says, like, I'm just saying, Plainview and Sunday and other, like, surnames in the movie are just really on the nose sometimes. Very. Um, but when he sits down and starts negotiating, you know, $6 an acre of land and, you know, so on and so forth, He's Daniel's probably used to coming into poor farmhouse homes and robbing them blind. And to have Eli, this smart, educated young man, to kind of negotiate with him, I I love that it came as a surprise for him, but he also knows like sure, like okay, I'll just say what I need to say now and we'll move on later it, i mean it also sets up the struggle for the rest of the movie and i do think because you have paul dano playing both characters he, he not that he feels like he got played by the original paul you know who he told like if you lied to me i'm going to come and get more than my money back from you but it's also it's it's like you're looking into the same face that that gave you this information and now this face is like fighting you on it and like trying to say like well, no, 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 no. I want 10,000 for my church and I want this and that. And I mean, he does end up, you know, Daniel is trying to tell them, oh, I just want to buy this land for quail hunting. And Eli's just like, we know, you know, I know you're here for the oil. So then he kind of comes out and says, so, I mean, it does, he is at least, he does make Daniel most likely give a more fair deal than he was originally. And that, as I said, it's just like that, is what starts the the main struggle for the rest of this movie is that opening scene continuing on with the the struggle uh the next negotiation scene and and um if you want to break this one down by all means go ahead is when eli walks into daniel's office at the oil rig right and that that does bring up another point too from the first one, just really quick, you know, as uh, Daniel shakes Abel's hand and then he turns to shake Eli's hand, Eli tries to like join him and HW in a prayer and Daniel pulls away. And I think at this point, I don't think Daniel can be mad enough at Eli to just pull away because he hates him. And so there is kind of this, does Daniel just have like a, kind of not a, a hatred, a, a distrust 
uh, a dislike for, you know, Christianity for religion, because you kind of get that throughout. Um, and maybe it's just a hatred for Eli. Maybe he immediately doesn't like him because he's screwing up his deal. And that's all that Daniel focuses on is the deal. Like he's a, he'd be a big Trump guy, like the art of the deal. But it, 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 there is this like question of, you know, d does he have something against religion in general? Because he does seem very hesitant around it. And so the, the next scene that you have with Daniel and Eli is the scene where Eli comes to ask if he can bless the well. And, and Daniel says, sure. And then Eli is like, well, you also need to present me this way and say that I'm, you know, a son of these hills and and it'll be a quick blessing, but it's very important. And, and Daniel tells him, yeah, yeah, we can do that. Yeah. And just, just before the deal was even done or, or negotiations were even on the table, just the way Paul Dano comes into that office and there's this power struggle, right? Because you see Daniel sitting down and Eli standing up. And again, Daniel, this is his rig. This is his land now. He probably feels like he has the majority of the power. And then all Eli is asking is a simple prayer. But Eli keeps upping the ante, right? And to a point where it's not a big deal. It's just a prayer. But it's almost like this pride thing that, that takes hold of Daniel to be like, you know what, you come in. And he asked me for something and I agreed to it. And then he just kept asking and asking. And I don't, I don't like that. And I got to show you who's boss. And, and that's how he does it. By then, you know, taking uh, Eli's little sister, Mary, and saying she's a daughter of these hills and naming the oil rig after her and then giving the blessing himself, which is the final indignity of a person who is so against religion blessing this well instead of Eli. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that is kind of like, if you're counting points, it's like, you know, two in Daniel's corner so far for uh, the, the fights that they have. I, I will say too, before, before you get to that part, there are a lot of really cool, quick, like establishing shots, scenes, whatever you want to call them. Uh, Daniel goes to the real estate guy and is going over all like the land and the real estate guy is just telling him for some reason the real estate guy is very in on this oil man coming in is like oh that land can be got oh and you, you can get this and this and this what do you what do you mean for some reason if he's the real estate guy he's probably getting a percentage of whatever the land he's selling I don't understand I, like I have no idea how 1911 land deals worked in the wild west I mean, I'm not saying he's their like real estate broker that's like, you know, getting, you know, 6% of all the, all the findings. All I'm saying though, is that if he's in charge of the surveying and the ownage of the land, he's probably getting cut in on the deal with all these cells. From what we see, it just seems like he's the dude with the maps. <laughs> <That's all. laughs> Daniel does his own surveying off by himself. But then after that, when you have like, I think the standard oil or whoever coming in and Daniel's just like, get back on the train, head east. Cause like I've got the mud around here is taken. I thought yeah. that was really cool. Yeah. But the, the best, the best part was as once again, Daniel is giving this great speech to the town of um, uh, new Boston or is it little Boston? Little Boston. We'll I'm not little. sure. 
doesn't matter. But as he's giving this great speech to another town where he's come to take all their oil, um, all of his men jumping off the train and just like infiltrating this town and like making it theirs, like that whole shot and that whole scene is just, it's just like really cool and like it just establishes like how quickly he moves and how much into his business he is. We did forget to mention one more thing about the negotiation for buying the, the land. Um, he promised Eli $5,000 to the church. Right. Eli asked for 10 and then he said, I'll make a $5,000 donation. Right. And the, the way I feel like Eli gains points, as you were saying, because you felt it was kind of like two to O for Daniel. When the first man dies in the, in the rig, you know, I, I was gonna say, I love how he dies, but I did think it was actually pretty cool how it was shot because something slipped out of a guy's hand, swung like a pendulum, hit something else, and then just flattened the guy. Um, when news got around to Eli, his first response is like, well, you should have let me bless the well. Yeah, after the very creepy scene of him casting out a demon of an old lady and um, and then dancing with her. Well, that's the only way to cure arthritis. Correct. Was the arthritis, I guess it was in her feet? Is that what we, I don't know. It was, it was in her hands and it was in the form of a, of a demon. Which, honestly, some of the voices that come out of Paul Dano, I'm like, okay, is he the demon? Uh, I don't know. We get into that at the very end of the movie of what he may have been and what he admits to. Um, I do also like the speech to uh, Little Boston, New Boston, is pretty great, too, because it's all, all the promises that you know, any oil man would make even, even today, like a, you know, a company that's coming in and wants to frack for natural gas, all the promises about what they're going to do, how little impact it's going to have, how great everything's going to be, how this is going to make your life better. Um, I watched Promised Land like four or five months ago, uh, which is a pretty like enjoyable movie, but it, it, it is pretty interesting about how like things don't change. Like these people come in who obviously like, you know, fossil fuels are uh, right now a necessary part of, of our lives, but it's just the way they come in and can do things to communities that, you know, may or may not be as beneficial as they say and the promises they make. It's interesting how like the things of that haven't changed. Yeah. I mean, like I said before, he's, he's very slick in his ways and he makes promises, you know, that might or might not keep, not that he's concerned if they will or won't at the time. It's kind of funny, too, because you don't see a really big jump in his wealth. Like, he's kind of, for the most of this film, he's living in this tiny shack on the land. Um, you don't see the big jump in his wealth until the 20-year jump or 15-year jump, something like that, where he's, you know, now an old man and his son is grown and married. But I think you said this earlier, that... And I never once thought this through the entire movie that he ever did this for money. And yeah, he was greedy, but I, I don't think he was greedy for wealth. It felt like he was greedy for admiration. Uh, yeah. And I think we can get that a little bit too in the end too. Cause I think the scene that best exemplifies that is when 
HW comes back and they're at, at that dinner and having the, the, the steak. Um, but to the next scene I really wanted to talk about, and it's a scene we talked about before we started recording, is uh, Daniel asking Mary if she likes her new dress and then telling her that, you know, the beatings aren't going to happen anymore right in front of her father. As he, and then after Mary r- walks away, he just stares down the father. Like, and he just did to himself, no more beatings. Um, that's a power move. <laughs> that's the power move. And I think, uh, you, you know, bringing up that scene brings up the, the fact that for people who haven't seen this movie yet, it is a, you know, a fairly serious movie, but there are some very well-timed instances and, and lines and stuff that are, you know, come off quite comedic. I'll also say something about Daniel Day-Lewis is the way he delivers lines, like really great lines. Like, I feel like this film is not quoted enough in like our everyday pop culture. But because the way Daniel Day-Lewis says such cool dialogue so nonchalantly, it, it goes over your head sometimes. I mean, I think the thing that gets quoted is the milkshake line that you started this with. But I think, like, I <laughs> I just keep to my wife, besides saying that, just like, I'm an oil man. <laughs> I am an oil man. <laughs> just I'm an oil man. Um, the one where he's like... Something, this is a family business. Uh, the mud's all gone here. Like, so, you know, things like that. And and it's just, like, cool way of saying, hey, I I took all the oil. But just, like just the way he says it comes off as natural. And I think that's kind of like something really cool about Daniel Day-Lewis's acting. The scene with Mary also is one of the other things that it, it made me question why he wanted the father to stop beating Mary, why he took like an interest in that. And I thought it could be because he could see obviously that HW had an interest because HW told him about it. Um, he could have just done it because he thinks it's not right for, you know, a father to be beating his, you know, his young daughter. But I also thought, you know, the HW explained that there was like the religious reasonings behind the beatings that she was, if she didn't do her prayer, she got beat. Now I almost wondered too, if this was kind of more evidence of his sort of disdain for religious people that you kind of definitely get a view of at the end. Um, but I thought it was very interesting that that aspect of it i mean it could have just been because he's a little bit of an asshole and he likes to have power and he likes to tell a dude i'm going to tell you how to raise your daughter from now on it could have been as simple as that but i think his motivation behind doing that is pretty interesting for for a guy who really doesn't like to being told how to raise his son it sure has something to say about how a guy raises his daughter um but i you know at first i think it's I thought when I first saw this, it was just like he didn't think it was something that was right, that something that shouldn't be carried on anymore. Um, but I really like your your reasoning on because the beatings had a religious um, effect or the cause and the beating was the effect. It It felt like, now that you say it, it felt like more of a disdain against religion than anything. Right. And I think... The next scene in this movie that is kind of the one that that sticks with me is the explosion at the oil well once they kind of get it all going. Sure, yeah, I think that's the most... Let me ask you, the 
beating him up in mud. Is that after? Uh, pretty sure it's after. Okay, so continue. <laughs> we'll, we'll, oh, we'll get to that. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, because I think that the explosion at the oil well kind of, uh, not directly, but leads to the beating in the mud. No, I think you're right. I think you're right. So, um, yeah, the, the explosion. So you, you kind of, I think that's the, the most you kind of get to see the, the machinations of the oil rig. And like the, it's actually a very impressive structure when it's, all, when it's all done. But, you know, there's a gas leak and HW is right there and it explodes and causes HW to lose his hearing. And I think it's interesting because, one, you have uh, Fletcher, which is played by uh, Mr. Hines, Syrian Hines, like gets to HW first and then Daniel gets there and, and, and grabs him and takes him in and it's like, are you okay? Checking on him, like seems very concerned. But then, you, you know, your, your boy just lost his hearing and you may not be for sure that you know that that's what's happened. Um, and you're immediately like, all right, well, I got to go solve this, which is, I mean, it is a huge issue that's going on out there. And maybe you are the only person that can fix it. I don't know. There's a ton of guys but it is a little cold that you had to leave him and like probably the most vulnerable part, part of his life that he can remember. Um, his, you know, his father died at a time he probably can't remember it. So this has got to be like, you know, losing a sense like that. Um, but then you have just the shot of him crouched in front of the oil well as it's like blasting fire is probably the coolest shot in this movie or in most movies ever. Yep. Just fucking badass. And I guess they had to do it practically, right? Because you so, said that the smoke uh, was like... Visible on the No Country uh, right. set. So if there so, was there was fire. That's generally how it works, but... Well, I mean, it's just like the... Okay, go ahead. Explain to me how, it, how they did it. So they got the guy who did something similar in Jarhead, uh, who's like considered... I guess the dude when you need to have smoke and pyrotechnics is the dude you get. Um, and it was just, yeah, it's all practical. There was one issue with it is that every bit of oil that got shot out had to burn up. They had to test the uh, land around it beforehand, and then they had to test it afterwards to make sure that they didn't add any oil, you know, they didn't impact it environmentally because then they would have had to pay huge fines. So they're, what they're shooting out initially is like this kind of water formula and then as soon as it bursts into flames, it's a different hose that shoots out the flames and everything, all the, and it was actually like a combination of uh, different types of diesel, oil, gas, whatever, um, shooting out that spark as soon as it came out of the hose. And so it's just shooting out fire. And they he also said too, that like the compound had to change based on whether it was day or night to get the view that they wanted. So it was actually like, a pretty like in-depth like process to get that done but i just thought the idea that if they spilled a drop of it they were in trouble was like pretty interesting yeah and i mean just the idea you know in the movie the fact that uh, i guess this whole thing started he, they said a gas leak and then the gas leak sprung the oil and he said something about make sure all the fires were out but i guess they couldn't get all the fires out. It doesn't seem like they, they got it in time. What's interesting too about that scene is it's this very hectic scene with like very loud pulsating music in your ears. 
and just like it's very dark and then Fletcher and Daniel are standing there and Fletcher's asking about HW and he's like oh no he's not good you know and but there's also then they start celebrating because they mean it means they hit it like they hit the mother load and this whole time you're thinking this is a huge problem for them and then in the end the only bad thing is what happened to HW but this actually means that they hit Hater which is pretty interesting too because the whole time you're kind of giving this okie doke and then you're like oh no this was actually great apparently yeah um when i saw the poster for this and it you know the poster is obviously daniel sitting in front of the big fire tornado um i thought when i saw this in the movie it was going to be this like horrible bad thing and the fact that they're celebrating about it and he's like you know that means that there's all the oil that i could ever possibly dream of down there yeah there's an ocean under there um i'm like yeah but that's cool and all but isn't it like burning up right now like (laughs) you know what i mean i didn't quite understand the logistics of it or why the fire isn't like following it down to the main source like why isn't the entire underneath in flames okay i think because it just it burns up before it can hit the ground that makes sense too so no, but I mean it's definitely a cool shot. You know what I think the the that whole scene really gets across as far as who Daniel is is that it farthers your expectation of him and his obsession with his work. Cuz like you said, he puts the concerns of his son aside to not really help putting this out. But like, you know, in celebration of that, this is going on and he sits staring at it until sunrise. And I'm, I'm pretty sure when it first exploded, it was near sunset. So he's been there for probably at least 12 hours while his son is, you know, who knows? I mean, we know, but freaking out, he doesn't know. Um, and I think that that just really tells you how far he's gone into his obsession at that point. Yeah, I, I guess. But I also saw it as he didn't just go and do nothing. He's the one that like took the hammer and knocked out the pegs that were holding everything up. Um, he has to direct all the guys. You know, this is his show. And so, you know, maybe he doesn't trust other people to make those decisions. Um, but yeah, at the same time, it does show like where his priorities lay or lie. I don't know how to properly say that. Um, and so that is, it's very telling on his character. Um, and then that obviously leads to, you know, one of the best scenes in the movie. Um, Eli Sunday picking the exact fucking wrong time to ask where his money is. It's not even a where's your, where's my money thing. I think it's also, he, I believe he snuck in there. I'm sorry about your son. Probably wouldn't have happened if you let me bless the well, Um, which is also the wrong time to mention blessing the well. Uh, Before we get into that, because I definitely want to get into that, is that the, the big thing that stuck out at me at the very, very beginning, at the opening shot of the film is the music. Um, You know, this, this is composed by Johnny Greenwood. And I think he does such a really great job in getting this like eerie soundtrack behind uh, seemingly like 
peaceful shots in this film. Yeah, the opening actually reminded me a little bit of Midsommar. It reminded uh, me of The Witch. Oh, very interesting. And the reason I say this is because I think the music takes an interesting turn when Eli Sunday kind of shows up and asks for, you know, the church's money from Daniel. Yeah, and at this point, too, I think this kind of does show... You could look at this one or two ways, because Daniel's obviously pissed um, in general. But he, he can't be pissed about the oil well, right? Because that happened to be a good thing. So he has to be pissed because of what has happened to his son, um, which also plays a, a heavy role in the end of the movie. But he, he kind of feels like his son's been broken and that he's never going to be the same. And this is this terrible tragedy that, that has happened to H.W. Um, and Eli just came at, at the very worst possible moment to try and do it. And like, I think Daniel just makes it very clear that whatever power games we're playing right now, when it comes to actual physical strength, like I can destroy you. And I'm going to show you that by pinning you in the oil and rubbing it all over your face. And there's not a damn thing you can do about it. Um, which leads into <laughs> Paul Dano covered in oil, just sitting at his father's table. Which is another like very funny scene for me because it's just like it starts off with this like close up shot of the father eating and then it cuts to seeming seemingly wide shot of of the rest of the family eating. But then Paul Dano's on the other side of the head of the table, just like drenched, which is like, I don't know, he didn't bother to like wash off afterwards and he just went straight home for dinner. Um, yeah, I think he, he, he's trying to prove a point, and then he starts yelling at his, his father because this is all his father's fault. And I love the line of, like, you know, God forgives many things. He doesn't forgive stupid people, Abel, like, as he's beating his dad. Um, yeah, he's a you stupid, stupid man and my stupid, stupid brother. That's actually the line that, that finally convinced me that it was a twin thing. That they weren't the same person, right? Right. Yeah, no, yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, and I think he probably has to put that in there too, just to clear things up for anybody that may have had questions about it. Um, because, you know, before that you could easily say like, what's going on here with, with this guy playing the, the same character. Um, and this all leads into kind of like the last half of, not half of the movie, but the last big story arc before the end of the movie, before the cut to 1927. And that's, um, Henry Plainview showing up out of nowhere. And I love the, the camera shot of, of Henry walking off the train station into uh, New Boston, Little Boston. And, um, and uh, then the camera comes up behind Daniel as he finds Henry like on his stoop. It's a, it's a very weird way um, to show their relation. Um, because as you find out when you're introduced to Henry, that they're half brothers and it's almost like this seamless thing where it's like the back half of Henry fits perfectly into the shot of the back half of Daniel. But then you find out that they're not brothers. Um, but the, the, the film, the cinematography is trying so hard to con convince you. Right. And I think too, the, the movie just sort of, 
does a pretty great job of sort of just taking for granted that they're brothers and just letting you believe it right away. It, it was something on first watch that kind of surprised me when he, when he found out he wasn't because you have um, HW that starts looking through Henry's stuff and then you see things that are like, oh, okay, yeah, I mean, I guess it, it, it is his brother. And Daniel also doesn't question it at all. Actually, not only does he not question it, but he fully accepts it to the point where like that night they're sitting around a campfire and Daniel is basically like pouring his heart out to his brother. It's, it's the most insight you get into Daniel Plainview from his perspective. And like some of the things he says about himself are like very interesting. Like he hates other people so much and he wants to succeed so much, but doesn't want them to at all. And what I love about that is that it perfectly explains his hatred towards religion because God forbid anyone would like look up to an imminent power, but you know, he's too good for that. Cause he thinks that, like he's better. He's God himself almost, you know? Right. Yeah. He doesn't, he doesn't need the help of anyone else. He doesn't need God or a man of God to bless his well. He can do this all on his own. Um, but yeah, that, that scene is, is, very interesting the way the way he opens up um and then leads into uh henry waking up in the middle of the night and saving daniel from a fire um that presumably hw started is what it seems like so hw definitely started the fire i thought it was more of a retaliation like at first i thought he was jealous of henry coming to town unexpectedly and then like upon farther thinking about it it's like he threw him off to the side when the oil well caught on fire. So maybe he was like, I want the attention for a, for a fire, something like that, maybe. The other thing, too, though, is like Daniel is a very heavy, heavy sleeper. So like this would have killed him. Like he would have died. He like he doesn't wake up very easily. Um, so I got to say that Daniel's sending him to like what seems like a very posh boarding school where he can get like all the help he needs is not like worst father ever material. No. And the, and the way he does it too, because he knows that that HW doesn't want to leave his side. And the fact that he's like, Oh, I have to talk to the conductor and he leaves the train and the train is going. And uh, that scene, although heartbreaking, you're right. It's not like really the worst thing for him. I think more the reason he didn't tell HW straight up or go with him is because he couldn't deal with it. He like, and I, not, he couldn't deal with it one because his focus is always on the oil, but two, I think he does really love HW maybe in second place to everything else that he loves. Um, but he, I think he just can't handle the emotions of like sending him away. I think it's too much for him. Well, what's so interesting is that this comes around at the same time that his brother comes to town and it's almost like he's replacing his partner in HW with his partner in his brother, who's more closely around the same age as him and has this certain respect of him that you know, HW maybe didn't have or had differently. And it was kind of like this, um, this feeling that I got that it's like, 
I don't need you anymore because I have Henry, you know? Maybe, which then leads into pretty interestingly that because Henry couldn't remember the peach tree dance, the the way Daniel like stares at him and then the Daniel goes into the ocean is just staring from him, you know, he needs like solitude to really think and rack his brain like, is this guy my brother? It's funny that like one piece of information he's told you all these things that connect that he's your brother and he can't, he doesn't like the peach tree dance doesn't click and you're like, fuck that guy. That's a liar. Yeah. It took me like three times rewatching that beach scene to finally figure out that it was the fact that um, he didn't, uh, react to him saying the peach tree dance uh, also you know the the night of like getting wasted and having sex with prostitutes and stuff i i feel like daniel knew that henry was a fake before then and it's all almost like the kindness I, I don't know if I would call it kindness, but almost sympathetic feel like, hey, I'm going to give this guy an awesome last night before I kill him. I think it really was just he he needed to get him alone. And I think also it just like, it gave him the time to stew as like, you know, this guy's not my brother. Why did he come here? And then this guy starts asking for money so he can go to the prostitutes because he can't pay for it himself. Um and I think then, you know, that leads obviously to Daniel shooting Henry in the head or whoever this guy happens to be. And you, you have to imagine it's because, not because he was lied to necessarily, but I think it's because he hates people. He only liked Henry because he thought he was family. And he's opened up and divulged so much to this guy as his right-hand man, Fletcher, is telling him, why are you taking him to these deals? And as his son is getting super upset about it, and it's just like, he doesn't get taken, Daniel, but he got taken, and he has to, like, get rid of the evidence of the person who did this to him. You know, you you find out that Daniel doesn't really have a family of his own. Um, He obviously has H.W. that he had to adopt, but you don't really know anything about his mother, his father, if he has any siblings, if he had a girlfriend, a wife, anything like that. So you have to assume that he's kind of alone in this world. And that's why he has such a close bond with HW, even though he's, they're not blood related. But after he kills Henry or what would have been Henry, um, he finds the diary that the actual brother left and he goes through and he has this very large emotional outburst and he cries about maybe what could have been, what could have been a, a real connection with an actual member of his family. It's a line in the beginning, I think they had around the campfire where Daniel was asking Henry, you know, do you have the anger and the envy jealousy that i have flowing through our veins and henry's response is like no i don't really get angry and i don't really you know get get jealous and he's like no you must because if you are from my blood 
then we share, you know, the same emotions essentially. And that comes back again at the end of the movie when he's talking to his son, all grown up, you know, um, kind of like how emotion and, and feeling is passed through uh, hereditarily, you know? Right. And before that, I think probably maybe the, I don't know if it's the funniest scene, but it's like one of the more important, but also just some, it's funny. Uh, but Daniel wakes up, uh, Mr. Bandy, who was like a holdout and didn't sell him his land, finds him. And uh, Daniel needs this land to build this pipeline. And Mr. Bandy says, well, I'll sell you the land, but you need to get baptized. And kind of shows him the gun and lets him know, like, I know you killed this, you know, somebody. Um, which is interesting. Like, I don't understand how he knew. But then the hilarity of Daniel just like offering ever increasing prices to avoid getting baptized and especially to avoid getting baptized by Eli Sunday is hilarious. Yeah. But then the scene of him actually getting baptized and like Eli getting his revenge and the way, the way Daniel handles it is it's an amazing scene, but also very funny. I think it's one of the most like famous scenes in the, in the film. Like I've heard about this scene without having to watch this film. And I think if you are going to watch this film, or even if you're on the cusp of like, maybe should I watch this film? Watch there will be blood solely for that scene. Cause I think it's a perfect scene that encompasses the power struggle between these two characters. And, um, the the reluctantness that Daniel has for saying what he's saying and uh, basically Paul Dano slapping the shit out of Daniel Day-Lewis. Daniel just like, basically like, oh, is that it? <laughs> like, you, like, come on, really give it to me. And he also, more than slapping him around, he makes him scream, you abandon your, your boy. Right. Which... He didn't actually abandon his boy. If we're being somewhat generous to him, he sent him. Although in saying that, that you abandon your boy, like very soon after he brings HW back and he has like a, an ASL tutor slash teacher that is with him. So, I mean, given the amount of money that he's made, you know, he was making 5,000 a week from just one well that he talked about, like he was rich even at that point. So he could have always afforded that. But yeah, having him yell to people that he abandoned his boy, proclaim it was like the indignity that, that you know, was the, the part that went too far and why the revenge at the end was so sweet. Um, and then you also have like, after that happens and he's walking back in, the congregation is hugging him and Eli's like, everyone get away from him. He has to, he has to take him the spirit on his own. Like, you know, you people are being too kind to him. Like, that's not what I want. Um, you know, and then Mary hugging him. But I think it, it's funny that as he's leaving, he's like, no, 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 everyone leave him alone. Like, I don't want you guys to actually like be nice to this guy. Um, and the power struggle that, that Eli and Daniel have, um, for me, and I don't know if you've like noticed this, but when he sends his son away and basically at the introduction of his fake brother, you don't see Eli for a very long while. 
And then when you do show up, it's like this ultimate revenge from like, you know, kicking him in the mud and the oil. And it's almost like discombobulated, disjointed in a way, because the whole movie from, from here on or from, from the beginning set up the, the rivalry between these two characters. And there's this, this very long break with the brother and now we're back with the rivalry between these characters. Uh, what do you make of like, t- like m- kind of making the fake brother the a- antagonist? Because he, he's not really the antagonist. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a subplot to the movie, but it's also because like this entire movie is an exploration of Daniel Plainview. And so you do that in a number of ways. You have this rivalry with this... Uh, this man of God, you have the, the son that he adopted at a very young age, you have this fake brother that comes into his life. And then you have, um, you know, his dealings with these other oil men, uh, these other oil men. Um, and so I think all of that is kind of necessary to depict Daniel the way that the, you know, the director, the writer was, was intending to. Um, and so I think, you know, having, he's not going to, it's not just going to be an entire story of like him versus Eli Sunday. That wouldn't, that wouldn't be an entertaining movie. So like having these plots of like his brother coming in and then HW losing his hearing and then him bringing HW back. Um, you know, I do think the baptism, the way Daniel Day-Lewis played it, it does seem to affect him somewhat. Like he seems to have been uh, not changed, but like, startled a little bit by this baptism baptism and having to admit that he abandoned his son and then very soon after he brings hw back i think it was i'm just in a real quick interruption i don't think he was changed or convinced of god in any way i think it was more that eli played on his guilt of getting rid of his son more than anything yeah i know i mean that's basically what i was saying um but I do love the shot of HW in the field and Daniel walking up to him. And it's a very far off, somewhat not out of focus, but you know, you can't really see much, but then the audio is as if you're standing right there. I thought that was really like cool. And one of those kind of, I thought that was cool too. Yeah. Um, But I think the, the next important scene in this movie is when, Daniel takes HW to the restaurant and the standard oil people show up. Um, Did we talk about the first time with his brother that he confronted the standard oil people? Well, I think we can talk about it in this. This, You know, the standard oil people offer him $150,000 for his old lease, which he immediately accepts. And then they say that they want to make him a millionaire with the, um, the little Boston oil field that he has, which it is little Boston. And um, he declines because he says, you know, I can work with these other people. And they're like, what, are you going to get a pipeline built? And he's like, well, it's exactly what I'm going to do. And there is a little like, can he actually make this happen? Is he passing up on more money than he can ever dream of for this potential to get more money than that even? But then this leads to that scene where they're at the restaurant and he's trying to have like, uh, a nice meal with HW just to make this about him and his son and not think about, you know, take some time for, for this relationship because it's, 
it needs to be repaired after HW coming back. And then these standard oil people come in and specifically the guy that tried to tell him how to be a parent. And uh, he first gets really pissed because they've already ordered their drinks, but then the waiter is waiting on that table as his drinks are sitting at the bar. And he's like, we were here first. You should have served us first and grabs his drinks. Um, and now like the whole, the whole day is ruined and he has to let them know you screwed up. You told me I could never get this done with U.S. oil, this pipeline, and I got it done, and don't you feel foolish. And he starts doing this thing where he talks to his son with a napkin over his head just to let them know, like, my son's deaf, so this is totally, like, a show for you. But the thing is, and this is what really bothers him, and this is why I feel like he's after, like, the status and, like, just the more and the more, and the money is, like, secondary, because he says he does all these things and then the guy at standard oil is just like oh yeah this guy we offered him a million dollars he just said no and the guy's like oh okay all right well what are you gonna eat because they're so big that this one well doesn't matter they wanted it they didn't get it they moved on because they have so much money that they can offer a million dollars to this guy get turned down and lose out on probably multi-millions of dollars and that was just a tuesday and he'll never be that big. And that's what bothers him is that he didn't even make an impact on these guys. So then he has to walk over there and make an even bigger show and be like, you're a fool. And I won. And the guy's like, okay, you won. Like, whatever. And th that's why, to me, this is like always just about, this is like, the goal isn't the money. The goal is just the goal. And like the status and all that brings. And like that, he's never going to be fulfilled that way, which is obviously like how it ends. Right. And I think, you know, you, you get a glimpse of more anti-heroism through Daniel, uh, especially when he's confronting the standard oil guy, he makes him say that he's a fool and he lost out out loud. And the entire time I was watching this, I was thinking like, dude, you're, you're the only one making a fool of yourself at this point. Um, you look like the idiot, like not, not the guy sitting down calmly. It's kind of like, you know, when you're at a, uh, a restaurant and some guy is like complaining about his food and calling the waiter, the idiot. That's, that's like the vibes I got from, from this fiasco. Um, and it, it had me ultimately like lose respect for Daniel. Cause I was like, yeah, the guy's a jerk, but like, that's kind of like blowing it way out of proportion, which comes back to not only the greed for status and, and accolades, but also his, his pride. Right. And I think from the point he kills Henry, there's like, you know, before that, there can be an argument, is Daniel Plainview a good man? Is Daniel Plainview a good father? After he kills Henry, it's all bad. He kills Henry. He goes through with a fake bat baptism. He throws this fit in the restaurant uh, in front of the Standard Oil people instead of like being with his deaf son who he abandoned earlier and now is brought back. And then next, we go 27 to 1927, like what, 15, 16 years in the future. And after his son gets married, he comes back to, to talk to his father. And Daniel seemingly already knows what he's going to say, that, that H.W. wants to go out on his own, that he, he says he misses the land and he wants to drill for oil on, on his own. And Daniel 
loses his shit and just can't handle that. One tells him like, you're now the competition, which is like, why is there competition? You know what I mean? Like it's super ridiculous, like super ridiculous that he's like, okay, you're the, you're the competition just because why he, he's out of the business or he's retired at this point. Even if he's not like it silly, you know? Right. And I mean, this is just to point out that the, the most important thing to Daniel this entire time has been the more, the winning, the, the being the best, the getting success and not letting other people get it, even his son. To the point where I think the worst thing that Daniel Plainview has done in his life is what he did then, which is tell your son that he was an orphan, that he was a, a bastard in a basket. And uh you know you you had never let this secret slip and then now just to stick the knife in to make him feel hurt you make fun of the fact that he can't speak because of this accident that was somewhat your fault if not totally your fault and then you tell him you're an orphan and none of you is in me and i i do love hw's response to that of thank god that none of you is in me Right. And, you know, that's the part I was talking about earlier where he's talking to Henry about how his anger and envy and, and you know, his, his rage flows through his bloodline and it should be in him too. And then he talks about his, you know, his bloodline flowing through HW, which it does not and does not exist. Um, obviously, some sort of like, I think that has to do with his pride too. Um, you know, like my lineage is the best and, and it's unfortunate for you that you don't share that. Um, right. And I, I also think too, like in the, in the 16 years, probably like 17, 18, maybe at this point that, uh, HW has been deaf. Daniel never tried to pick up on any sign language whatsoever. And I think that was kind of even more sad. Like when I, when I saw that part, I was like, Oh, it's just like no, no effort whatsoever. And it kind of just puts into perspective what is most important to Daniel. Um, and it also, it's like, does he see HW's deafness as a weakness or is it a reminder to Daniel of where he failed in this relationship? And I, I think you could see it either way, but I think it's, it's also just, it's, it, I think it's, it's a weakness to him. It's, it's something that is a, a defect in HW and like, it's not something successful people would have. Um, but yeah, just the way, like, he's such a loving father seemingly throughout in the, in ways, I think, I think you can see it there, uh, maybe, maybe somewhat hidden, but yeah, the, it's the, the way he talks to his son is so sad in the end. Um, to me yeah and i always think you can look at it as it's both right he sees it as a weakness but then he also sees his own failures in him through that through the deafness um and so it's like half of the time where he's like talking down to hw at the end there it's almost kind of like he's talking down to himself and admitting or confronting all his failures without even having to ever confront his failures, which is a win-win for him, I guess, in his own mind. But 
I think another thing with this movie is that the fact that Daniel is the main character. He's the guy we've been rooting for since the beginning. And so you have this kind of like story throughout There Will Be Blood about this guy who is not really bad, but does seemingly bad things, but he still loves his kid. And that's nice to his full redemption arc, but in reverse. And at the end of it, basically losing all of his redeeming qualities. It's his villain origin story. I mean, it starts too as he adopts this boy that he doesn't need to adopt, which I think says a lot positively about him at that point in his life. And then it just, um, it never really gets better from that point. It's always kind of downhill the way he treats um, HW. Uh, and I think it's interesting too, the, the, the young HW, um, they actually just found a random kid to play that part in, in Texas where they're filming it. Or hmm. it may not have been Texas, but um, Paul Thomas Anderson was more concerned with like the boy having the feel of the part and being like an outdoor kid that knew how to like hunt a little bit and fish and like get dirty more than someone who could just like out and out act. Is that why they gave him only three lines? Oh, he was deaf on. <laughs> Before that, David. Um, and I think that's that's the last scene, right? There's no, there's nothing else in this movie that we would we need to talk about before we wrap this up, correct? Oh, you mean after Daniel talks to his son about how big of a disappointment he is? I think that's where it ends. If I'm, I may be misremembering. There might have been something after that. Um. Oh, there's that little scene with Paul Dano. Right. right. Oh, yeah. He does. I like. <laughs> That scene at this point has just become so kind of overblown, like in the culture of movies and people that like movies and so made fun of. There's like t-shirts with I, you know, I drink your milkshake. But what I think is, and I'm talking more about the Daniel Plainview character than Daniel Day-Lewis, the actor in here, here, but when Eli comes in and tells him like, hey, I can get you this thousand acre tract of land and all this oil, the way, the, the giddiness that must have risen in Daniel Plainview at like, <laughs> I don't know if he was going to kill him at that point or if he just like wanted to, to fuck with him. Um, but it, he played it so cool. And uh, it's, it's a, I think it's a very satisfying comeuppance for Eli Sunday who, clearly admits in this scene that he is not a believer either one he is actually admitting it saying that uh you know god is not real and i am like a snake oil salesman or by willing to sell himself in order to say that he's also admitting that those things aren't important to him and that money is more important to him. either way whether he doesn't believe the words he's saying he's he's believing it he's he's proving it well, obviously, you know, this is like a, a reverse of what happened earlier. By the way, I take back my statement about if you're going to watch this movie, that's the scene to look out for. If you're going to watch There Will Be Blood, this is the scene to look out for. Um, because you don't need to look out for it. It's the, it's the very end of the it's movie. It's the very end. Um, and and it, it's this entire reverse, right? Where 
Eli wanted to have Daniel during his baptism admit, you know, he believes in God. He finds forgiveness in God. He wants, he's a sinner. He wants to wash away all his sins and he abandoned his son. This is the moment for Daniel to take perfect revenge on Eli. And I think he does it in a pretty glorious way. Um, but I, I don't know about you, but I think he went a little too far. I mean, yeah. So first he gets him to renounce his religion and he makes him do it several times and with gusto and, you know, really, really sell it. And then as soon as he's done, he's like, yeah, I took all that oil. Um, that's gone. Like I, I took your oil. And that's where the, the famous uh, milkshake line comes in. And then he, uh, he starts attacking him. Um, which is also probably a, it's a very funny scene specifically. So they're in, we're in a personal bowling alley of Daniel's and Eli runs to the back and is like behind the machines and you see him pop up like whack-a-mole. Yeah. And then at one point he disappears on like the right side. And then pops up on the left. Daniel stands up and throws a, (laughs) a bowling pin at that side. And then he pops up on the left side, which is really funny. And then um, tries to crawl away. Um, you, you never crawl, right? You never crawl away. That's a bad move. Yeah, I mean, we talked last podcast, and it's in the Irishman. Like, you, you know, you attack if it's a gun. You run if it's a knife. Bowling pin, you do not crawl away. Um, no. And I don't know if you've ever held one of those. Those are pretty heavy. Right. Um, so that, that obviously had to hurt. Yeah, that uh, – it, it, it's interesting how – how far he took it in that moment. And it almost is just like the final culmination in his like descent into being a horrible human being. Well, I think he said it best when he's next to the dead body, he's sitting there, his butler comes in and he says, I'm finished. Cause I think you could almost justify the killing of his brother or his fake brother, you can almost justify everything that he's done. And even if you can't justify everything he's done, he does have redemption. Um, he does redeem those things at, at a certain point. But the conversation between him and his son at the end, unforgivable. And yep. I don't think anyone could justify the cold-blooded murder of Eli Sunday at the end. So when he says, I'm finished, I felt like it was kind of a double meaning, right? I'm finished like he's done, and I'm finished like he's over. Uh, Those seem to be the same thing. Well, I'm done like, you know, he's completed his arc from, to you know, whatever to villain. He's done. And then he's finished like he's probably going to be put in, you know, prison for this. Um, you could also take it as I'm finished. Like I finally finished my foil, my arch enemy. Like he's finished. Like I took care of this problem that I've had for nearly two decades. Like I'm done with it. And he also probably thinks too, like, you know, his butler comes in and sees a dead body and his, his, uh, you know, his dude is his boss. And he's just like, uh, is everything all right? So like, (laughs) 
I can only imagine he was next going to get like the, the plastic tarps and, you know, start cleaning everything up. Um, I, I do also think that, uh, and you brought this up a little bit too, like for a movie called There Will Be Blood, there's, there's not much, but I mean, you know, the anticipation builds and like two and a half hours in, we finally get the blood. Right. So it, like it was promised and it was delivered, if not at the very last moment. You know, a lot of people die in the movie. A lot of people get squished by falling anvils or oil rigs and, you know, die that way. Um, but the fact that they keep, you know, the gore out of the view of the audience, I thought was really interesting. Like it was a really interesting choice to make. I also want to think about how we first saw Daniel when this movie started right? We saw him in a hole at the bottom of a, of a, of a mine shaft and how we see him at the end of the movie is he's sitting in his own personal bowling alley. And so in that sense, he got what he wanted. He basically crawled out of the metaphorical hole that was his life and built this empire that he can be proud of. He can take ownership. He can be, uh, adored for or whatever he wants out of life you know his greed his pride that has all come to fruition but his character as a man is a thing that has fallen so deep so for me i really like the ending because yes he got his ultimate goal but he in a way he lost his humanity on the way so he it's it's a, it's a bittersweet ending. I like the ending because he bashed Eli's head into the ground with a bowling pin. So, Alon, I think before we completely wrap it up, there's one thing we must discuss and I must tell you. Okay. What do you think the oil was made of? Oh, like on production? Yeah, I know the answer. This is like a quiz. Okay, um... So you mentioned before that they were trying to be environmentally conscious and they didn't want to be sued up the ass. It's edible as a hint. Oh, is it chocolate sauce? It is the liquid component of the McDonald's chocolate milkshake. What? Yeah. How did they get so much chocolate milkshake? All I'm going to, all I know is that Paul Thomas Anderson was asked and that's the only information he would apparently give to that question. But so it's, so I think we can just take away that it was a chocolate milkshake, which totally like. Which totally fits the line new, of I drink your totally, milkshake. Totally really adds perfectly. New meaning to, yes. yes. Um, but also is Paul Thomas Anderson, like, is he, is he funny in real life? I wonder, because that could have just been a lie and it could have been a really funny answer to a dumb question. Fuck you. You know, there was no doubt in my mind that, watching this i was gonna love it i was gonna think it's a it's a great film you know it's no secret paul thomas anderson is a notoriously great filmmaker daniel day lewis might be the best actor in our lifetime it is a very entertaining and thought-provoking movie um do i like it better than the master which you know i love uh do I like it better than No Country for Old Men, which was its like Oscar rival? It's kind of shocking to me that I saw this in theaters in 2007, maybe early 2008 when it was making its Oscar run. 
and I haven't seen it since. And so watching it again today, I have like a whole new appreciation for it. And I love it just as much as, you know, when I walked out of the theater. Um, trying to compare it to No Country for Old Men or The Master or whatever, like they're all just amazing movies. And, you know, the fact that we get to watch all of them is pretty great. So yeah, I loved this movie. That's the thing, right? Because I don't think you can compare, nor should you probably compare them uh, to each other. I would definitely watch this film again. It's, it's highly entertaining. And I think there's a lot of pieces in this movie that if you blink, you miss. So I definitely think this film is worth a, uh, a rewatch. Well, thanks for listening to another episode of I Finally Watched. This is David. And this is Alon. And I Finally Watched There Will Be Blood.